I'm going to read us a children's story to start off with, okay? It's kind of weird, but this book is very worn because it's a book that I've read to my son a lot. He actually told me that he is done. It's called The What If Monster by Jonathan James. And so I'm just going to read the first half of it. Uh, It says, Some what-if monsters like to hang out and fill up our hearts with worry and doubt. They are sneaky and quiet and quick as a blink. The words that they whisper can change how we think. Jonathan James heard those words full of dread, and all of those what-ifs got stuck in his head. He's climbing a tree here. He says, what if you tumble? What if there's wind? What if you slip and your knee gets all skinned? At the pool, what if they giggle? What if it's chilly? What if you jump and look really silly? What if it's hard? What if you're bad? What if they laugh and they make you feel sad? What if it's ugly? What if it stinks? What if that's what everyone thinks? He's doing art in this one. This one, he's trying new food. What if it's yucky? What if it's icky? What if mom yells because you're too picky? Sleeping. What if it's dark? What if it's scary? What if there's something giant and hairy? He's getting ready to run a race. He says, what if you lose? What if you're last? What if you're slow and never get fast? Making new friends. What if she laughs? What if she runs? What if she thinks you're not any fun? What if? Now, when we read this book, it's a kid's book, but it's probably one of my favorite books because it deals with something I think that we all deal with, and that is doubt. Now, I'm going to ask you to be kind of vulnerable here. And just, does anybody... Has anybody ever or continue to deal with any doubt in their life? And this isn't just like Jesus things, but like doubt just in general. We all have doubts about ourselves. And, and I deal with something called imposter syndrome a lot and doubt. So imposter syndrome is you don't believe that you are supposed to be doing or you are very good at what you were, you were supposed to be doing. And um, I mean, it's something that I've talked about, you know, in therapy before, and something I probably should continue to go to therapy for about understanding and believing that I am called and going to do what I need to do. And this is actually a very real thing amongst millennials. So that's my age group, uh, right? You know, before the Gen Xers and the Boomers, is this us weird group called the millennials. And there's a very real imposter syndrome thing that goes through our age. Uh, and the one article I was reading was about financial imposter syndrome, like. They never feel comfortable with what money they have. So this is just one angle of imposter syndrome. Partly because when millennials were entering the workforce, uh, the Great Recession of 2008 happened. They were just starting their jobs, so they had no financial stability. So then they got settled, and then another recession happened. And then the pandemic hit, and there's just never really been any stability for people in my age group. Other areas of imposter syndrome, uh, you know, we, I am in a position where I proclaim and believe that God has called me to, to this area of the country, right? But what if I misunderstood God? I don't think so. And I talk to my wife regularly, like, is moving to Dallas a very good thing for us? And it is. I check probably once a week. Are you still happy that we're in Dallas? Do you still like living here? Was it a good decision? Every time it's yes. I mean, we love being in this area, and, you know, we are just affirmed over and over again 
that we are called to be here. You know, is moving across the country away from our, our family and our established friends and the house that we had, was that a good idea? I don't know, you know. <laughs> I think so. God has called us to this. Is leaving, you know, this is my last year of teaching too. I am finishing up the school year as a teacher. I've taught for, I think, nine years now. Is leaving something that I think I'm relatively good at that has like all these good benefits and the retirement system and all that stuff built in, is that... Is that a good idea? I think so. God has called me to this. But these are things I have to deal with. Those are just like the big decisions I deal with in life. You know, like, am I raising my kids right? Am I disciplining them well? Am I saying the right things? Am I, you know, like, doubt is a thing that can just worm its way into my brain. What if? What if? What if? What if? What if? What if? Now, I'm going to actually be extra, extra vulnerable and ask you, have you ever doubted God? Have you ever doubted that God is who God proclaims? Have you ever doubted your salvation? Have you ever doubted that this whole thing that we're on right here is the real deal? Have you ever doubted that Jesus died for your sins? I, myself, am a fact checker, sometimes to my own Detriment, And it makes it really easy to do when we have these phones that uh, you can look up all the information in the world within like five seconds. I can just, my, the amount of Google searches that I have made to try to understand something is astronomical, right? I just, and I always question things, is this right? But I'm a fact checker. And what that happens, what can happen with that is um, sometimes I'm just curious and sometimes I don't trust people when they tell me things. My kids are the same way. They will say that I don't know what I'm talking about all the time. They say, that's not right, Dad. Especially when it comes to planets and dinosaurs and stuff like that. They say, that's not true. This, or this dinosaur is called this. And I say, there's no way that you know that. And sure enough, I pull out my Google, my phone, and everything they say about planets and dinosaurs is correct. They know more than I do about these topics. But I'm doubting, but I learned to trust. And we all have different ways of dealing with this doubt in our lives. Some people, like myself, we fact check. Some people just ignore it. You know, they'll just bury their head in the sand and whatever happens, happens. And they'll just, you know, they'll stumble through life and they'll get to where they need to go eventually. Some people just are really, really, really good at trusting whatever is happening. When we talk about faith, there's a lady um, at the, the church I used to pastor uh, in Toledo. She was the most faithful person that I have ever met in my life, almost to a point where I did not understand it at all. She had all kinds of things happen to her, all kinds of crazy things. Every week it seemed like there was a new situation that I was praying for her with or long-term situations. And every time I would pray with her, I would be so amazed and humbled about her faith. Because she just trusted God so much. And I just didn't understand it sometimes. I'm like, your life, these things that you're dealing with are like crazy, you know, like big issues and, and life-changing things. But she always believed because she trusted God so much. Because God had brought her through things in the past that she could rely upon. Trusting people and trusting God is something that I am working on a lot. Uh, I am working over and over again to trust people that I know have my best interests at heart, 
who knows that have been proven right over and over again. You know, um, sometimes I am very forgetful. We were just talking about this before service. Um, I am a forgetful person. Part of that is just the way my brain is wired. Um, I have to write things down. If you ever look at, uh, I'm always probably writing something down or trying to find a system that can work for me, that can remind me to say, you need to do this thing at this time or else this won't happen. Like the Brighter Bites things that Jonathan was talking about. The only reason that I went is because somebody texted me and said, hey, by the way, we're packing food at 920, and it was 845, and I was in my pajamas, and I was supposed to go to a meeting. And I was like, oh, my gosh, i got to get dressed and go do this. So at least there's one person there. And so I just need, I need these systems in place until I do something over and over again that I start to trust uh, that that I'm going to get it done. And so the reason we're talking about all this doubt and all this trust is because of a very famous disciple. We're all famous, but Doubting Thomas. There is this guy named Thomas in the Bible, and he's one of the 12 disciples, and he gets this nickname, Doubting Thomas. And I feel really bad for Doubting Thomas because it's often used as a way to kind of say, um, like you just you have no faith or you're not going to trust because you have to see the physical evidence right in front of you. And every time I listen to uh, or learn about more disciples, I just appreciate them so very much because I relate to them. I realize and recognize that the disciples are just humans that we write about in Scripture. And what makes them special is not that they are deities themselves, but that they are real people who trusted God and God worked through them, right? Thomas was a guy that answered the call when Jesus said, come and follow me. And he said, I'm on it. And he goes and he travels with Jesus and he has three, three really important stories about him, especially in the book of John. And, and there are these three stories and I want to paint a picture of who he is. The first one is from John, the 11th chapter. Uh, and I'll set the scene for the story. So there's this guy named Lazarus. Uh, if you don't know who Lazarus is, he was a friend of Jesus. He got sick and he died. And Jesus was away when this happened. And when he got word that uh, his friend was sick, uh, he said, let's go back and visit him. And the disciples said, why do you want to go back there? Because they're just going to try to kill you, which is true. Because the last time Jesus was in this area, he said, basically, I'm the Messiah. And the people were like, uh, the religious leaders said, you can't say that. Do you really claim to be the son of God? And he said, well, I do say that. You're just not listening to me because you're not my sheep. And they pick up a bunch of stones to stone him. That's what they did in the old days. They pick up a rock and they're getting ready to throw it at Jesus to, to kill him. And he says, why? I've done all these miracles to show you that I am God. And why do you do that? And they say, we're not killing you because you do amazing things, we're killing you because you say that you are God. And so they leave. They get out of there. And so the disciples are like, why do you want to go back there? I know Lazarus is your friend, but you might get killed. And Thomas speaks up, and he says, <laughs> he says a short little phrase. And he says, let us go, let us also go, that we may die with him. <laughs> let us also go, that we may die with him. Whether he wanted to go because Lazarus is sick and, and be in that moment where Lazarus passes or really we're going to go wherever Jesus goes.
because Jesus was there amongst them in the flesh. You know, it's one thing to proclaim we as Christians say we believe that Jesus died and rose again, but we have no, we, at least I, have never physically seen Jesus, but I still have faith that Jesus did what is recorded in the Bible. I've never seen Jesus. Thomas, it's very easy to trust that Jesus is who he says he is when you're walking with him every day, learning from him and witnessing miracles. For, so for him to say, let us go so we may die with him, is just a courageous statement that I'm going to go wherever Jesus goes. A little bit later, in the 14th chapter, uh, Jesus is talking to them and talking about going to prepare a room in the Father's house. And talk about going somewhere, right? So I'm going somewhere. I'm going to prepare a way for you to be there. And Thomas speaks up and he says this. He says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how could we know the way? <laughs> it's a simple question. We don't know where you're going. And Jesus answers probably one of the most famous scriptures. And when I read it, I'm sure that you will know it. And it is the way that we proclaim who Jesus is. It says, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. In fact, this verse is why I end most of my prayers. We pray this through Jesus Christ with the power of the Holy Spirit, to include the whole Trinity when I end my prayers, because no one goes to the Father except through Jesus. And that is all because Thomas, doubting Thomas, asks the obvious questions. He just has a way of saying well, when we do teaching, we always say, if you have a question and you ask it, it's likely that there are other people with the same exact question. Now, if you were sitting like big trainings or whatever, like here, like if you ask the question, it's likely that somebody else has that question. Thomas was just the person that was bold enough to verbalize that, I guess. And, but because of that, we get to hear this great proclamation by Jesus that no one comes to the Father except through me. And that's because Thomas, doubting Thomas, the questioner, the person that wants to know and see the physical evidence or hear the answer spoken to him, is not afraid to speak up. And so before we get to talking about the main gospel message that we hear, the question is, is doubting good or is it bad or is it something else? I think sometimes we look at people with doubts and we see them as people of uh, lesser faith or we see them as people who aren't quite as evolved as we are in the faith or whatever. I, I personally think that doubt is just a part of our human fallen nature. When Eve was tempted by the serpent, right? It wasn't, it was casting doubt that God really was saying the whole truth to them, right? I mean, he just attacked, not, he wasn't violent, he wasn't aggressive, but he attacked and cast doubt inside of their brain. So part of our free will is having the ability to think, to make decisions. And so doubting, I think, especially after the fall, is just a part of deciding to follow Jesus. But doubt, I think, where it crosses into being bad is when it is the only thing that we have in our lives. Part of the reason we have the church 
And the part of the reason we have the congregation of the body is to support one another when we have doubts, to answer questions, to be with people. And so if all you do is doubt and doubt and doubt and never cross over into trusting God or practicing that, then I think it becomes a problem. Doubting Thomas, I think it's a, I, I think I've said it, but he gets a pretty bad rap as a person, as a disciple. But I think it represents us so much. I think this human flaw or this human side of Thomas that we read about is something that we can identify with. We can identify with Peter when he goes headlong into situations and doesn't think about it and just kind of blurts out whatever is on his mind, good or bad. We can identify, because I, I bring up Peter because he's kind of like the golden child, right? Peter is the rock. Peter is the one that everybody says, so good. The church rests upon him. But even he gets it wrong. So Thomas, what, what chance does Thomas have? He's just kind of like a footnote in some of the other gospels. He's kind of like in the list, right? Uh, and there's Thomas in the middle of the list. Thomas simply expresses his thoughts and his doubts when he's around these disciples. And that's probably what other people were thinking. And why do I think that other people were thinking that Jesus maybe didn't perform this great miracle of resurrection? Well, I think that because when we talk about an Easter, do you remember who were the people that discovered that the grave was empty? You can answer that. Shout it out. Who were the people that discovered? Who's that? Not Peter. Women. Two women saw that the grave was empty, and they went back and they told the disciples. And what did the disciples do? Did they say, praise God, Jesus is resurrected. It's so good, we believe everything that he said before. No. They sprinted down to the grave to see that it was empty for themselves. They don't call them the doubting disciples for whatever reason. They get this pass that after the resurrection, they did not believe what the women were saying, that the grave was empty. They had to go see for themselves. And then... Before Thomas got to see the resurrected Christ, everyone else got to see him. <laughs> Before the gospel message that we read, on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and his sides, and they were so happy. But Thomas wasn't there. Thomas missed the excitement and Jesus showing his hands and the wound on his side. But nobody, it's not recorded that anybody expressed any doubt in that moment. So, Jesus says, he also says, here's the Holy Spirit. And he gives the great proclamation. Whoever sins, uh, you forgive, are forgiven. And uh, kind of the John Great Commission of this, uh, of Scripture. So Thomas doesn't see this, and people are trying to convince him that Jesus really came back. And he said, unless I touch it and put my hand in his side, I don't believe you guys. And I don't think that he thought 
that the disciples were playing some cruel joke on him or anything. I think he thought that, uh, doing some of the reading, that they thought he saw a ghost because the door was locked, right? The door was locked. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders, and Jesus just appears in there. So the disciples are sitting in this room, and they say, Thomas, guess what happened? Our door was locked, and Jesus just showed up and said, here I am, and then he went away. And Thomas, the skeptic, said, uh, I don't quite believe that's what happened. Again, probably stating what everybody else would have been thinking if they were in Thomas's shoes himself. And so the Holy Spirit is mentioned here, but it's not enough. It's not enough for them to convince that, that Jesus came back. It's not enough to convince Thomas that, that Jesus is back. And I think this is a great precursor to Pentecost. Right? Pentecost is the day that the Holy Spirit comes upon, everybody starts speaking different languages. But for whatever reason, this isn't as effective. Why? I don't, I don't know. Maybe uh, Thomas just was too much of a skeptic. His heart was hardened. He didn't believe it. Maybe the disciples didn't fully believe it because there's stories all over uh, Scripture where Jesus sends the, the disciples out and they can't perform the miracles and Jesus calls them you unbelieving nation and, and stuff like that. Whatever it is, Jesus comes back into the room eight days later. The door is locked. Okay, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So exactly the same beginning as before. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And out of this proof that Thomas gets from Jesus, he proclaims one of the most profound declarations of Jesus' deity in the whole New Testament. He says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Now, this is more than just saying, Jesus, you amazing teacher, rabbi. This is more than saying, my mentor, the person I've traveled with forever. This is more than saying, uh, the political Messiah that we talked about, you know, where the Messiah was supposed to be this Jewish political leader that, that conquers the whole. It's more than that understanding. It is more than all the understanding that other, any of the disciples, I think, have ever professed or proclaimed up to this point. But doubting Thomas, the man who is supposed to be the skeptic and everything, says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. These words are words that I hope that when we encounter Jesus ourselves, or when we encounter Jesus, we say, my Lord and my God. Above all things, above everything of this world, above our understandings of who we think God is, because Jesus is my Lord and my God. And I think this is beautiful because this proclamation and this proof or whatever, Jesus says, he takes a moment to teach here because Jesus always teaches, right? He says, um, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. We are those who have not seen and yet believe. We are blessed, my Lord and my God. The good news for Thomas well, unfortunately, John gives him the nickname or helps give the nickname Doubting Thomas. But the good news is, is that's not the end of Thomas's story. 
right? Thomas, like all the other disciples, go out and they start spreading the good news of the gospel. And Thomas is actually one of the disciples that travels the furthest out of all the disciples to spread the gospel in the world. We read a lot about uh, Paul, who wasn't one of the original 12, but one of the great evangelizers of the Christian faith. He kind of sticks around Rome and Turkey and kind of that Mediterranean area and does a lot of work. But we don't read much outside of that. Thomas goes all the way to India, which when you're walking or riding, you know, camels or horses or donkeys and wagons is a long way. <laughs> he goes to India. He also possibly travels to Indonesia, which is very far east, and even possibly China. He was so influential in spreading the faith in India that he's actually the patron saint of India to this day. His remains and his tomb, it's all in India. So Thomas, even though he professed or he, he spoke out what was on his mind, even though we get to label him as Doubting Thomas, he changed the world because he proclaimed, my Lord and my God. Jesus shows these, and then he even lets Thomas touch him. Why does he let him touch these wounds? I don't know why um, he specifically shows these wounds or whatever, except to prove that he is who he says he is. But I think it's because it's a reminder of the ultimate sacrifice and the conquering of death. Jesus died on the cross, but he came back. And Jesus continues to reveal himself through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. See, we don't have marks on our hands. We don't have a stab wound in our side for people to, uh, to touch. You know, like if, if a person on the street says, I want to believe in Jesus, but you need to show me the wounds on your hands and the side. Right? That, we don't have that. But what we do have is the work of the Holy Spirit changing our hearts and acting or helping us to act more and more like Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice was total love, was total love. And so our lives needs to be selfless, sacrificial, total love. That's why we do things and like out in the community without expectation of return, right? One of the things we talk about is being extremely generous with our resources without expectation of return. And what I take that to mean is we are extremely generous with what we have in loving people without expectation or anything except to reflect and show who Jesus is into our community. We do that by serving our teachers, right? By stocking their rooms or writing letters to them. We do it by packing uh, food bags for the kids to have fresh fruits and vegetables. We do it by uh, doing a movie on the wall once a month, whether it is, you know, 30 degrees and windy or super hot. Uh, we do it by participating in back to school uh, bashes. We do it by, we're gonna host a, a kids celebration Sunday here in the next couple months. We do all of these things because we love this community and I hope, I obviously don't see you guys throughout the week, I hope that in everything that you do, it's done out of love and with care to show people and have proof that Jesus is transformative in our lives, and we believe that. Because there's nothing worse than somebody who proclaims to be a Christian and hates people. And when people are looking for proof and people are looking for uh, Jesus to exemplify who Jesus is, that we as his followers act the exact opposite way that Jesus acts. People 
who don't know Jesus already doubt that what we say is true. I think John and I talk all the time, like it's kind of weird what we do on a Sunday morning. We come here and participate in all of this stuff. And from the outside, it would seem kind of weird, and people would say, why would you spend your Sunday morning doing that? Well, it's because we believe that, you know, we believe in the community of the church, we believe in transformed lives, and we believe that it shapes us that we go out into the community, that we live out what we say and what we read in Scripture. So overcoming doubts, obviously it's very hard. Doubt eats away at your brain. Doubt eats away at your belief in yourself, your belief in God. So how do we overcome the doubts? Well, we just practice trusting God. I shouldn't say just. We practice trusting God over and over and over again. One thing, this book, What If, the second half of the book, I'm going to read it. Because it's all about the what ifs of stuff that doesn't happen. He says, now wait just a minute. I have something to say after hearing what ifs all throughout the day. I hear all your worries. I hear all your claims. But what if you're wrong, asks Jonathan James. What if I climb to the top of that tree and I never slip or skin up a knee? And what if I jump right into that pool and everyone thinks I look really cool? And what if baseball is nothing but fun and I end up hitting a triple home run? And what if my drawing goes up on the wall and everyone thinks it's the best one of all? And what if I taste some of that food and it puts my mouth in a really good mood? And what if I run a really big race and have a great time no matter what the place? And what if I sleep and have the best dream that monsters are sweeter than they all seem? And what if I take the chance I, and what if the chance I take in the end is just how I find my very best friend? What if? What if? We believe that God is who he says he is, and we believe that Jesus has transformed our lives, and it's going to take a little bit of courage. And if we don't have the courage ourselves, then we rely on the people that are around us, and we rely on the people that came before us. In Hebrews, they talk about the great race and the, the great cloud of saints, the people that we can look to ahead of time. Moses has people that surround him that hold his arms up when he gets tired. With more practice comes more trust, and with more trust comes less doubt. Regular prayer and scripture practices and fellowship of believers are the ways that we build up the trust so we don't get stuck as a doubting Jeremy or a doubting Thomas. And even if we ask the obvious questions or the questions that are on our mind, that's not the end of our story. And the more that we do that, the more that we trust God, the more that we can believe God has the best interest for our lives. That I can trust stepping out of everything I know in a comfort zone of Northwest Ohio and teaching. I can come and give up a profession I am good at to come live out the calling God has called me to and our family to. That moving from a building that we had in Mesquite to East Dallas is something that we can trust because God has brought people through similar situations. When I was in the Army in basic training, it's a chaotic time. And I remember the first time that I thought, what did I get myself into when we were on the side of a hill facing down doing push-ups. And the mantra that got me through all of that was there are thousands of dummies that have come before me and done this. I can get through it. <laughs> Now, Christians, we shouldn't say there are thousands of dummies that have come before us, but we can say there are thousands of saints that have endured hardships and doubts and have changed the world 
because the Holy Spirit has worked through them. Daily prayer, daily scripture reading, daily fellowship, which can be so easy as sending a text message like we uh, asked you to earlier, to check in on one another, are ways that we can deal with doubt. Because when we do not practice these things or we get into isolation is when Satan can really take a hold of our lives and separate us from God. Doubt and doubting Thomas aren't the end of the story if we don't want it to be. Jesus is who he says he is, and Jesus transforms our lives so we can trust him and God's promise every single day.